Today's reading is Genesis chapter 50, verses 1 through 21. In the Pew Bible, it is pages 43 and 44. Then Joseph, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when, the days of jo and when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my, in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all his servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elder, elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grieving, grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Misraim, it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him off to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess a burying place. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate, hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of, of the God to your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell before him, fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you take your Bible again and turn to the last chapter of the first book of the Bible? And I'm going to read again uh, the portion of scripture that we'll be focusing in on this morning. Genesis chapter 50, beginning at verse 15 down to the end of verse 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, 
please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your, and the word really is, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Well, I'm sure you've slowly but surely been working through the great book of Genesis. Genesis, of course, means beginnings. And uh, we know from this book things that we would never know by putting all of our minds together, the great minds of Harvard and Princeton and Yale and the great think tanks down through history could never find out the things that we find in the book of Genesis. A God who is infinite and eternal and vast and wise merely speaks words. And out of absolutely nothing, he brings everything into existence. And as amazing as that is, he creates Adam and Eve in utter perfection in a garden that will make Hawaii and all the tourist spots of the world look like slums one day. But Adam and Eve sin, and they bring upon this world the devastation that we feel right down to this present day. The, the, the ramifications of the fall are absolutely incalculable. They've affected every person who's ever lived or whoever will live. We see all around us the devastation of saying, I know better than God what is best for me. Thanks, God, but I'll call the shots. I'll run the show. And the tragedy is not only in the world in general, but if you've lived for any le length of time, you know the tragedy in your own life because Adam means man, and you and I, before we were converted, <laughs> said, Adam, you're the man. And we've ratified, ratified his choice multitudes of times. And we said, we'll, we'll run this. We'll call the shots. We'll, we'll do what we want to do. And if there's a tough problem, we'll call on God. But for the most part, we'll, we'll, we'll run the show. And of course, the rest of Genesis shows you the ramifications of running the show. But we are, we're thankful for divine intervention, aren't we? we thank, we're thankful to God for coming and, and, and speaking to a man like Noah or Enoch or Abraham, of course, and much of the book of Genesis is dealing with three men that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, what was true of Adam after the fall is true of everyone after the fall. And God didn't choose men with great potential. He chose sinners who had nothing going for them except grace, divine grace, God's grace. And so you've worked through the lives of Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob, Jacob. And we find ourselves this morning at the funeral of Jacob. When he met Pharaoh, he told him that his life was basically short and miserable. And a guy who always worked the angles, uh, his name means the heel grabber. He's, he's the kind of guy that you just don't want him behind you. You want to keep your eye on him. He, he's, he's a shifty guy. <laughs> but like every child of God, what's amazing about him is that he believes the promises and, and he loves the Lord, but he's constantly demonstrating why he needed to be saved. And, and you talk about dysfunction. If this was 2022, boy, they could make a long-playing soap opera on the life of Jacob, couldn't they? Time he's through, he's got four wives, he's got 12 sons, he's got at least one daughter. He's got a, an uncle that's even better at conniving than he is. And yet through it all, God is continually intervening and, and continually not only directing this man's path, but changing his heart from grace to grace and from faith to faith and from glory to glory. And, and he's now dead. His life was short from the patriarch standard, 147 years, but it was full of trouble, full of trouble. And now his beloved son, Joseph is able to close his eyes in death and he is buried with his grandpa, with his daddy, with his kinfolk. Well, the funeral's over and they all come back to Egypt and now the real fun begins. Now, if you have your bulletin and you flip it over, well, it depends which side you're looking at, but if you flip it over to where it's basically blank, you will see an outline there, and if um, for no other reason, you might want to fill it out to see if I've kept on track, and um, you might even kind of remember the points this afternoon. We want to see three things about our passage this morning. First of all, and the title of the sermon is Help for the Hurting, and if, if you're not hurting, if you've never been hurt, you're, you're free to go now. Don't leave your kids, but you're free to go now. But have you been hurt? And if you've been wounded, especially by the people you don't expect to be wounded by, I'd encourage you to hang around. First point is the hurt. The second point is the help. In about 1, 1.30, we should be at the third point, <laughs> and that is the handling of the hurt. So first of all, the hurt. Well, like I say, the, the funeral's over, and, uh, and only in Egypt do you have these long, drawn-out affairs. If, if Egyptians know anything, they know how to bury people, don't they? In fact, every once in a while, they're digging up somebody's mummy from Egypt, and um, very elaborate because Jacob is a very prominent man. His son is the prime minister of the country. His son, in a sense, has been a savior to Egypt. And um, so the family is greatly respected and honored. 
But the funeral's over, and Daddy's dead, and there are ten boys who are not quite sure what to do next. One thing about Joseph's ten brothers is that they're good at making up stories. We'd call it lying, but they're good at making up stories. Uh, you remember the story. If you think back in the book of Genesis, they, they, they have no idea whose it is, but they found this coat of many colors, and, well, they have no idea who it is, what happened. They brought it back to Daddy Jacob, and he said, oh, it's got to be my son, and he's been killed. And they ran with that story. Now they need to come up with another story because the buffer in their life was Jacob and Jacob is now dead. <laughs> Look what it says in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. Don't you love in one sentence pretty well all the words that deal with our depravity? Their transgression, their sins, and their evil. I don't know how long you need to be saved before you've been sinned against by the people of God. The first time it happens, it's a great shock. You sure weren't expecting that one. You were, you were blindsided. You're ready to make the pass over here, and something came out on the other side and tackled you at the knees, took you down. And then there was piling on. And it's a very, very strange experience. It's the kind of experience that you hope never happens again. But if you've lived any length of time of, as a believer, you, you know you'll, it'll happen again and again and again. <laughs> you, you, you see, the problem with being a Christian is that all the other Christians are like you. That is, all of us are still struggling with sin. If I were to apply for membership here, and gave my testimony and told you what a wonderful guy I was, you'd vote me down, thumbs down in the Roman Forum. Because you see, the requirement to be a member of this church is what? You have to be a sinner. You have to absolute, have absolutely nothing going for you based on you. And when we hear those kinds of testimonies, we're thrilled, and yet almost immediately we expect these saved sinners to stop sinning, and especially to stop sinning against a great guy like me. How dare you? But as we're kind of working the rest of our pilgrimage, uh, we keep bumping into each other, don't we? Um, we were visiting our adorable grandchildren. I think Dave and Jamie were there this weekend, but we weren't there for them anyways. We actually came to see Job and Johnny. And um, <laughs> we'd seen enough of Dave, frankly, over the years. <laughs> so 
Anyways, Johnny brings out this amazing thing. He brings out these stones that are as smooth as anything. And wow, really something. Then he brings out this machine that you put just ordinary rocks and stones and junk you find along the beach or in the driveway or whatever. And you put them in this machine and they just kind of bumble around for, I don't know, a week or two or six or whatever it is. And by the time they're through, they're as smooth as anything. Isn't that amazing? And that's exactly what God does. He gets a sinner like me and he sticks her with a sinner like Marlene and says, now you guys are stuck with each other for the next, well, actually the rest of your life. And then takes us sinners and puts us in a church full of sinners and, and we just kind of tumble around and tumble around. And, and you know the amazing thing? Eventually, we become smoother and smoother and sm I don't mean smoother at sinning. I mean more godly, more Christ-like. And the, and the weird thing about it is that most of our growth has come from being sinned against. That's absolutely astounding. Isn't it? It's like that machine Johnny's got. I don't know how it works. I'm, I went into the ministry because I couldn't do anything else. And I, I don't know how that worked. But boy, when you feel those stones and, and when you see people after a year or two or five or ten, aren't you amazed what the bump and grind of living in this world does to a child of God? But we can't avoid the obvious. Remember, the point of this point is it hurts. The hurt. A word is repeated several times and Joseph himself picks it up in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Now this word in Hebrew, and I just know shalom in this word, so I won't overwhelm you with all my Hebrew knowledge, but this word is ra'ah, kind of R-A-A-H. And Canadians love anything that ends in an H, hey, like E-H or A or whatever. And, and this word ra, ra'ah, is a very interesting word because it can mean both the act, like sin or wickedness or badness or evil, or it also can mean the result of the act, like injury, calamity, hurt. It, it, it's, it's a very... Well, you can imagine, because <laughs> it's the Bible. This word is found all through the Old Testament. You see, it's bad enough that just in the bump of grind of life, you know, we're out in the parking lot, and I accidentally back up and hit your car. Those things happen. But what Joseph said about his brothers is, you meant to hit the car. His brothers meant to hurt him. They're the covenant people. All of the promises, all of the promises that God has made since Genesis 3 reside in this dysfunctional family. Isn't it amazing? 
And these 10 boys have had it up to here with their brother. He was kind of Joey Two-Shoes, good, good guy, always, you know. And, and every once in a while, he'd, he'd say, in a sense, do you know what God just told me? Mom and Dad and you clowns are going to bow down before me. And boy, that bugged them. It was obvious already that, that uh, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. Today, he would have got a sports car. Back then, he got this hot jacket. And, and I think part of the reason Jacob did that was so that he saw in Joseph maybe the ability of get these other kids in, in, straightened out. And if you work through Genesis, <laughs> there's a lot of straighten out to do, isn't there? In fact, the old man sent Joseph to check on the boys over yonder in Dothan. And when they saw him coming, I mean, you can't help but see him coming. He's got this, you know, jacket. And uh, they came up with a plot that they would either kill him or sell him. He was 17 years old. For the next 13 years of his life, Joseph would be a slave or a prisoner. Now those, I'm 70, almost 73, and I vaguely remember those years, but I think they were the best years of my life from 17 to about 30. I was in my prime. And for those years, Joseph experienced the fallout of the ra'ah of his brothers. And they meant it. If they could have, they would have killed him. And only providential intervention again kind of got him at least to be sold as a slave. And he went to Egypt, winds up in in the Secret Service, uh, the bodyguard of the emperor himself, he's to look after his household. He's propositioned numerous times by Mrs. Potiphar, falsely accused of sexual misconduct, thrown in the slammer, and even there <laughs> they put him in charge of the place. What a man this, this Joseph must, must have been. And then you know the rest of the story. He. He will interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. But it hurt. Well, what's the help? Well, they had told another story. They had said, you know, before dad died, you know, he's kind of, you know, the, just gasping for breath near the end, but he, he lets them know that, tell Joseph, tell Joseph to forgive you boys. And when Joseph heard that story, and he does that quite a bit in the latter part of Genesis, doesn't he? He, he breaks down crying. And he's going, oh man, does this never end? These guys are lying again. 
what's going to help him? Have you noticed that there's some people who it seems like they're never going to change? And have you noticed about you that there's some things about you that it seems like they're never going to change? Sin's a funny thing, isn't it? It, it, it's, It's something that you just can't shake. It, it's part of your DNA. And, and you sometimes do things that you don't want to do. You know they're wrong. But you're sinning. And you will always sin until they close the casket. Well, probably a day or two before they close the casket. That's how desperate this is. And that's how desperate it is that God must do something about me or I'll perish. Well, what's the help if you've been hurt, and especially by the people of God? Verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but, oh, I love that word, but. It's a word of contrast. And I'm always thankful in the Bible when that word is put in there after it tells something about me, And then it's going to contrast it with something about God. But God, but God meant it for good. Don't you love a theology that you don't have it all figured out? Don't you love a theology that is filled in the real sense with mystery, not like a whodunit? But we're dealing with a God, even in his very being, who is three individual distinct persons, yet one God. (laughs) And then the second person of the Trinity enters into time and space, and he is very God of very God, and he's as human as you'll ever see. And then you've got things like a Bible that is divinely inspired from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And yet, as you go through the book, you say, wow, boy, Paul writes different than Isaiah. And Isaiah writes different than Nehemiah. And you say, boy, how how does that work? A Bible that is fully divinely inspired, yet obviously humanly written. Well, even your own conversion. We were looking at it in Sunday school. (laughs) It's a God who sovereignly chooses and calls And yet, you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't repent for me. He doesn't believe for me. He doesn't even persevere for me. I'm fully engaged. I was fully engaged at 17 in the whole process without even knowing there was a process. And down to this very day, I'm fully involved in all of living of life. And yet, behind it, I'm constantly saying, but God led God overruled, God did this, sovereign ruler of the sky. Now he says here, we're going to call a spade a spade. (laughs) You guys were out to get me, and you done me dirt, and you raw-awed me, but God. God took the very same thing that they intended for evil, and he intended the same thing for good. Theologically, it's called concurrence. 
and con here doesn't mean to fool somebody, but like a concert, the different instruments are playing together. Con means with. And occurrence means like occurring. The very same event, beating this kid up, throwing him in a pit, selling him to a caravan, winding up in Potiphar's house, being falsely accused of misconduct, thrown in a prison, all of those things really happened. And yet in every one of those things, God's intention was it would be for good. Now the amazing thing is after reading the book of Genesis, you never thought you'd see the word good again in the Bible, would you? It was there in chapter one and chapter two and he saw that he made and it was good. And at the end, and it was very good. And then Adam and Eve fell. And you would think there would never be good again in this world. But it's here. We were looking at a verse this morning in Romans chapter 8. I doubt if any of us really remember it. But God is working what? Everything together for good. What an amazing God. You know, in a Disney movie, to make it really work, you got to turn the pumpkin into a golden cherry. You got to turn the white rats into beautiful white horses. You got to turn the warty green frog into a handsome prince. And then they live happily ever after. But you know what God does? For the most part, he leaves warty frogs, warty frogs, and rats, rats, and pumpkins, pumpkins. He needs no magic, no hocus-pocus, no fairy dust. He leaves everything the way it is, and he works it together for good. Isn't that astounding? I, I was just saved a couple of years. I went to Bible college, and I roomed with three other guys. And one of the guys had a big, massive book. Now, I wasn't a book guy back then, unless it was about sports big massive book just on quotes and illustrations and I'm flipping through this book hoping I guess by osmosis if I flipped through it read the odd thing some would stick here and I'd be smarter than I was I read this phrase it said if I had the power of God for 24 hours I'd make all kinds of changes in the world if I had the wisdom of God I'd leave everything the way it is. Now, I have Bible college, seminary, university. But, you know, I read that in the first week I was at Bible college. And that stuck with me. You and I would like to make a lot of changes in our life, wouldn't we? Aren't you glad you're not God? That you're not running the show? Because, you see, God knows absolutely everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what he's intending to do. And in this case, he's intending to keep a lot of people alive. There's a drought a-coming. And he's sending Joseph to be a savior. And every savior in the Bible, and especially the great savior of the Bible, has to suffer. And every child of God has to suffer. And what enables us to see the help and the hurt is that whatever is done to us, 
God is intimately involved without being the author of sin for our good. For our good. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, but I'll quote him anyways. John Calvin. John Calvin said, whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect. I like that. Whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his people. And if you look back over your life, you can see, not when you're going through it so much, but you can see afterwards your goodest times, your gooder times. The times that you grew the most were the baddest times, weren't they? I, I say my prayers every day. Do you know when I really pray? <laughs> when it ain't so good. And so, hurt's a fact of life. But the other biblical fact of life is that I must see that God is always acting in the very same situations. Peter says when he's preaching, you with cruel and wicked hands only fulfilled the eternal decrees of God in crucifying Jesus Christ. <laughs> no other event in human history would you call good and Friday together, would you? Except the death of Jesus. Well, we still only have an hour or so, but we're at the third point, and that is I know my son preaches a lot shorter than I do. Well, you can't get much shorter than me, but... Uh, <laughs> at least height-wise, height handling the hurt. Now, now what do we do? We know that we've been ra'ad, we've been hurt, and some of it's been intentional. But we also know that intimately involved in every event of my life is the sovereign working of God to take the very same event and work it together for good. Now, what do I do with that? How do I handle the hurt? Because so far, they're just two theological facts. They got to be put into practice. And in my observation of many years being a Christian and many of those years being a pastor, you see, Dave didn't give me all these gray hairs. Other people did. And the biggest problem is not so much people don't know nothing. It's that people don't live in the light of what they know, especially if they're Christians. So what do we do with the hurt and the help? How do we handle the hurt? Now, in verse 19, Joseph asks a very interesting question. But Joseph said to his brothers, and by the way, don't you love it? It's just a passing comment. If I was writing the Bible, I'd be stopping there and say, hey, you clowns, do you remember what he said back and, you know? His brothers, in verse 18, came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your slaves. First of all, they sold him as a slave. And isn't that exactly what Joseph said would happen, that they would bow down before him? And they've bowed down a few times since they got to Egypt, haven't they? Boy, God has an amazing way of fulfilling his word and his promises. As we think of the crucifixion, how many, and not a bone was broken. And so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Absolutely astounding. 
even the shekels in Judah's hand were predicted 400 years before. What an amazing God who micromanages the entire universe for the good of his people. But in verse 19, Joseph said to them, stop being afraid. <laughs> you see, my sin produces all kinds of fear. Our culture would say you shouldn't feel so guilty, Don. You're actually a really nice guy, and things are, you know, but, but the Bible says you better fear. You better be scared. And then he asks the question, for am I in the place of God? Here's where the tricky part comes in being sinned against. Now, this phrase, the place of God, is only used two other times in Genesis. In Genesis 3, what was the temptation of Satan? You will be as God, determining what is good and what is evil, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And the Bible says there's only one being who can decide what is good and what is evil, and that is God. This phrase is also used in Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to flip there. I'm sure you've got the chapter memorized. It's one of those little domestic talks that Jacob and Rachel have. And Rachel's just really laying into them because she's not getting pregnant. And she's really, and the, uh, the concubines and Leah, her sister, I was going to say popping out the kid, uh, kids, but that may not be a good phrase. But you know what I'm saying? And she really lays into Jacob, and Jacob says, am I in the place of God that I can give life? You see, there's some things that only God can do. Only God can determine what is right and what is wrong. And only God can create life. And here's the third thing that only God can do. In verse 15, the, the, after dad's funeral, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. And what does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Only God can repay back for all the evil that's been done. And I must never act as a believer as if I am God. I'll get even. Oh, boy. Preachers can do that. You can, you can tell there, there's a bee in their bonnet or something under their saddle, even by the way they preach. And, and the average believer can kind of like these guys up here with the guitars, you know, the strings on fingers really hurt and you need a callus to toughen it up so you can keep playing and some of us have got calluses on our heart because people and especially the people of God have hurt us I'll get them I'll pay them back oh I'm not very big so I'm not going to take too many people out at the knees but I can think of nothing more wonderful than actually having my friendship. I'll just ignore them. I'll just 
you know. Not allow him or her or them to have the privilege of really getting to know me. I'll punish them in some way or another. By the way, I talk about them to other people or whatever it might be. And, and Joseph says, and, and he's learned it by experience, he is not in the place of God. And our temptation is when we've been hurt, and especially deliberately hurt, we want to be God. And we want to punish. We want to pay back. But the other option is we can be like God. And there is a difference. Being God means that I'm settling all the scores in the universe. Being like God is forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. I, I'm sure you can tell in this area which are the Christian farms and the non-Christian farms, can't you? Rain just falls in the Christian farms and the right amount of rain falls in the Christian farms and then the right amount of sunshine and I don't know what happened with the snow. Maybe that's sort of like rain. I'm not a farmer either. And you can always pick out the non-Christian farms because they're just a mess. Weeds, thistles, and thorns. Genesis 3 everywhere, right? No. Why God is so amazing that he causes his sunshine to fall on the just and the unjust. In fact, if you kind of look around, it looks like even from God, the believer gets the rawer of the deal. And God is very patient. He is very long-suffering, isn't he? And you see, the word forgiveness means, in fact, oh, by the way, what's the last thing that Jesus, at least one of the last things that Jesus said on the cross? Father, get them. Forgive them. And you see, when I'm like God and not God, I forgive and forgive and forgive. That word forgive is mentioned several times. Uh, you see, in the Bible, you don't usually have italics or fancy print, and they don't even underline in red like I do. But they, they, if you, they're making a point, they repeat the word again and again so that thick heads like me would get it. You see, if you believe what we've sung today, you don't have to get revenge. If you believe your Savior is sovereign, if you believe that he's working everything together for your good, you don't have to act like you're the judge of the universe. And that's freeing, isn't it? Tremendously freeing. Well, that's the negative, you know, Whatever you're doing, Joseph, whatever you're doing, Donald, whatever you're doing, make sure you're not acting like you're God, but act like God. Now, forgiveness is expressed in two ways, and I might even make it. Forgiveness is expressed in two ways, and Joseph got both. He tells them twice in verse 19, don't be afraid, and again in verse 21, don't be afraid. And really what he's saying is stop being afraid. And you can tell if you've really forgiven somebody, first of all, by the way you treat them. Look what he says. 
You don't need, in verse 21, to be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Do you realize Joseph could merely snap a finger, a couple of beefeater guards would be on these clowns, and they'd be thrown in the slammer, and they'd be dead by sunrise. Everybody in Egypt loved Joseph because he was the savior. But he says, you have nothing to fear in the way I treat you. And you know you've really forgiven somebody by the way you talk to them. And if you remember back in Genesis, they couldn't say a civil word to Joseph, could they? Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Oh, it's crucial how we talk about people and how we talk to people, especially those people who have sinned against us, <coughs> and especially those people who deliberately sinned against us. You see, it isn't my job to settle all the scores. I have a Heavenly Father who is the judge of the universe, and, and to be honest, Joseph doesn't want his brothers to be judged by the strict standard of the law because they're his brothers, sisters. I don't want God to punish the people of God. The Savior was punished for that. And if we're open enough and humble enough, we've seen that we've hurt a lot of people in our lives. There's a song, I don't know who sang it, probably a hundred guys sang it. You always hurt the one you love. Boy, I wouldn't want my wife to take me to court. Haven't killed her, haven't had an affair. It's just, I sin most openly with her. And the gospel is coming to us and saying, listen, what's unique about the gospel in the mess that this world is, we have the answer. It's pardoning grace and forgiveness. It was given to me as an undeserved sinner, undeserving sinner, and I'm to extend it to others. I, I think the Sermon on the Mount says, uh, in the prayer, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. And, and like England during the Blitz in the Second World War, in all that Joseph has done, I think this was his finest hour, don't you? What an amazing man of grace that he pardons and cleanses and wipes the record straight and he loves and cares for and treats with great compassion and comfort and kindness the, real, the, the people who intended, if they could have, they would have killed him. And he talked sweetly to them. What a great gospel. And you think, boy, if this is how Genesis ends, I wonder what Exodus is going to be like. I don't have an inside scoop. I don't know if you're going there next. But one of the things that Exodus tells you is what? Forgiveness on God's part is not a cheap thing. You've got to go to the right place. You've got to have the right 
person. You've got to have the right priest. You've got to write the right sacrifice. And you think, oh, man, if I'd have lived then, it's hard enough to get the kids to church now. Imagine hauling bulls and goats, pigeons and some wheat and some wine. And then you go on to Leviticus, which is really exciting. But, oh, you keep going, and you go to Matthew and to Mark and to Luke and to John, and you say, oh, I get it now. It was all building towards the great forgiver of sinners. <laughs>